and this is Jonah Thompson again with the Integrated Community Paramedicine Podcast. And today we're chatting with uh, James Mason, who is or at least was a paramedic and has done a lot of work around community paramedicine without actually being one. We figured we'd talk today about uh, some of the work he's done, some of the stuff that he's thinking about, and give us some insights into mobile integrated health programs and some of the opportunities that you know are out there. So say hi, Jim. Hey, Jonah. Uh, thanks so much for getting me on. And we've been talking for a couple years now about this. And I appreciate you having me on. And you are exactly correct. I do not work in EMS on a daily basis. I have some tangential relationships, work with some teams, specialized teams, and do some organizations. But you're right. I'm not a currently certified EMT, paramedic, nurse, doctor, anything. But what I specialize in is is bringing groups of people together from from healthcare, from the military. That's the recent side of me. But back in 1995, when I'm at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, I go to paramedic school during my junior year, and I get to learn EMS in the urban environment. And then I get to learn it in the you know the poverty-stricken areas of Braddock and stuff around those old steel mill towns. Before that, I was at EMT in West Virginia for three years in the weekends before I was going back and forth to Carnegie Mellon, and I learned the rural side of it. So I was on a Navy scholarship, so I took off and uh, became a Navy helicopter pilot for the next uh, 20 years. In the last 10 years of that career, I worked in emergency management, running uh, crisis operations for Homeland Security, disasters, hurricanes, got a degree in emergency management, knew I wanted to get back into medicine. And so how does a guy get back into EMS after all that? Well, he comes back to West Virginia, he goes to school, and he's using his GI Bill, and he's... He's at school and they say, hey, you need to do a legislative project. And I said, well, I want to figure out how we make community paramedics in West Virginia. It's something I've been looking at for a couple of years. So this is 2016, 2017. I hooked up with a, a mentor that actually happened to be a uh, National Guard date surgeon. What we basically did was put together a distribution list of about 130 different people across the state of West Virginia hospital administrators, EMS folks, nursing homes, uh, nursing aid associations, just all kinds of things. But how do we get all that together? And what it is, is community paramedic work is simply in the environment I'm in, in West Virginia, you are using a paramedic multi-tool to solve the social determinant problems of healthcare in an austere environment. It's no different, Jonah, than what we did in the military in some far-flung places, if that makes sense. So paramedic multi-tool is, a, is an interesting way to describe a solution to this problem. You know, our, our Marine brethren like to describe themselves as jacks of all trades, and well, they're, they're masters of a few things, at least breaking stuff, but you're right. I mean, oh, absolutely. Looking, you know, looking at your background, and, and similarly, a lot of the stuff that I did prior to coming back to traditional domestic pre-hospital care and, and community paramedicine, you know, we all bounced around a lot of lovely places in the world that most people don't have on their vacation highlight list. And, you know, a lot of the work we did was just simply figuring out problems and trying to understand, well, what's really going on here? Because we could try the blunt force solution, but that's rarely successful or, you know, resilient and <laughs> uh, enduring answer. And at least that's what I took to community paramedicine coming from what I was doing before was that we can go in and we can do something short term, you know, limited duration and interventional. But when we leave, nothing sticks and they're right back in the same boat they were in before. You know, or we could go in and try to really understand, well, what are the what are all the different variables that are really driving this problem? And can we help local folks figure out how to solve that or how to think about how to solve that? So when we leave, they've gained some new tools. And that's really what we try to do here, at least when it comes to CP work. You know, how do we leave people in a better position to take care of themselves? Well, I think you're exactly right there when it comes to, for here, it's cultural competency. Anywhere we've been across the world, they gave us a a little guide on how to not use the, the wrong hand to do the wrong thing or which side of the street to walk on or who do we greet? How do we greet people? How do we look at people? But that is cultural competency. Now in our communities, whether they're rural or urban, that community paramedic or that mobile integrated health provider, whether they're an EMT, a paramedic or a nurse, they have to be culturally competent. And that cultural competency allows them to go and sit down with the patient, the family member. And why? Because we always say that EMS are some of the most trusted people in the country. EMS folks are trusted folks. And they get into the blind spot of where every provider, every nurse practitioner, PA, doctor that has a DEA number, they, they get those patients. They're motivated. The patient's motivated. They leave the hospital. 
And then, man, it's a blind spot. Well, that's where the CP comes in. Yeah, absolutely. And we um, we discovered pretty early on in doing this this CP work. You know, I've been at it now since 2013. Wow. That a lot of people would invite us into their homes and would let us stay there and say, "Hey, you guys are paramedics. You're cool." You know, that nurse just keeps coming, and all they want to do is take my blood pressure and type on their computer. And you want to scream. You're like that nurse that was quote unquote typing on their computer is an expert in wound care. And you have a significant wound that requires specialized care. And if you don't get it, you're going to end up back in the hospital. You're going to end up back in the ICU. And this was probably going to be what kills you, either directly or you know by starting off a chain of events that's going to get you there. And I'm going to spend the next several weeks probably using motivational interviewing and some other things, trying to get you to come to the realization that A, you need help, B, you need help from someone with a specialized skill set, and C, that maybe wound care is something that can help you accomplish the goals you want. You want to be more independent. You want to not feel sick all the time. You want to not be in the hospital. And this is how we're going to get there. And then without you knowing it, in the background, I'm going to desperately search for a program that will take you back because you fired every wound care specialist that you've been referred to. Um, and, and we end up in that, that loop all the time. Like you don't actually need me. What you really need is wound care, but I've got to help you understand your own situation and then understand how to ask for the help that you need to accomplish that. I think, I think the CP is the key to the lock. So because we, we all have ADHD because that's what we do, right? So one of the vignettes I'll talk about uh, later is deploying CPs in the national environment during disasters and necrotizing fasciitis in Florida will be the one we come back to. But you were well, talking I mean, that's about- That's the thing. And uh, you remember when I did that talk a couple of years ago about the CP role in disasters and really it's around the uh, ESF sheltering function and how to not medicalize people who have access and functional needs. And I'm sure we can have a whole nother conversation about this some other time. Well, I think we're, we're, developing, we're developing more podcasts as we go along. My, note, my three by five card's getting full, brother. And, uh, and so you're the key to the lock. You, you talked about that. You're the entry point. You're put. You're taking that CP and putting it, putting it into the patient's lock and kind of unlocking their, their world. You're on the ground with them, on the trenches, boots on the ground, going, you know what? I know you told the doctor you don't smoke, but man, that's a whole pot of ashes over there. Hey, you know, and and that decubitus that you've been because you haven't been turning. Could I just get you something as simple as a as a different kind of pillow? Or you're the you're the social fabric weaver as the CP. You know, you're going into that home, man, and you're weaving the the Kevlar fabric around that person so they don't fall through the cracks. And what what's that mean? Well, that might mean you're connecting them to some church that delivers meals two days a week, but that's not that's not going to give them nourishment. So then some social program that you know about because you're a CP and you've been on the road for 20 years and you flip open your cell phone and here's some social organization that'll provide breakfast five days a week. And then here's this other program where they'll send uh, some kids over, some teenagers to come and mow your grass. And you can't get that in healthcare because that's not healthcare. But what you are doing is, it? is building that human. But is it? And well, yeah, I think we're coming to a much greater understanding that that actually is healthcare, and it's actually critical healthcare. If we don't address those psychosocial and environmental factors, all the real life stuff that drives acute care utilization, you know, and maybe that's the divide. We often think about healthcare in the context of acute care and in the context of emergencies and interventional care, but the reality is that healthcare spans the spectrum from cradle to grave. This is where our family practice and our primary care folks really are the key to all of it. We have to think about people through their entire life cycle and not just when they're presenting with an emergency. And that's the the opportunity to take a paramedic whose primary specialty is emergency response. But every time they respond to an emergency, the story they hear is about all the real life stuff that failed leading up to that point. You know, and early on, I really thought about this in the context of specifically things like chronic disease. We were talking about this from a a disease-based standpoint. And I think common and probably fair place for a lot of MIH programs to start, they start with all these these diagnoses. You know, we're going to work with heart failure patients. We're going to work with diabetic patients because that's the case management approach. That's what case management has done is they've said, we're going to take someone based on their label their diagnosis. And we know that there are some evidence-based or hopefully evidence-guided best practices that will lead someone who is a diabetic, who just had a hip replacement, who just had an admission for sepsis or a, a hip replacement, that if they check all these right boxes and they follow this care plan, that we know from history 
from evidence, they're likely to have the best outcomes. And that's the case management methodology. And it's worked very well for people who get on the path. And where I see CP as being different is we don't start from that diagnosis. I don't care what your diagnoses are. They're relevant, but they're not. I'm interested in your patterns of behavior around utilization and demand for services. Why are you utilizing healthcare services disproportionate to someone else with a similar clinical history? Because that's really the folks we're looking at is, you know, you take five people with diabetes, four of them are incredibly well managed. You know, they see their PCP once a year, they check in with their endocrinologist, they get their A1C and their microalbumin and their either digital or dilated retinal exam and their foot exam. They do all those once a year. If they're over 65, they check all those Medicare STARS criteria. And there's really no problems. You know, maybe they occasionally, you know, every couple of years, have an, a, an emergency or a problem managing their blood sugar. But for the most part, they're well managed. It's a lifestyle disease. And, you know, they can live a normal, you know, fairly active and healthy life. And there's that one person, the fifth one, though, whose blood sugar is wildly out of control. Blood sugars are high, blood sugars are low, A1C is consistently high, they have a number of emergencies that generate 911 calls, they're in and out of the ED, they get admitted, they're in ketoacidosis once or twice a year. And the difference between that person and the other four is not that their diabetes is any different. Diabetes is diabetes. The difference between that person and the other four are all those other things. It's the, you know, the psychosocial environmental factors. It's the fact that, you know, they can't manage their diet because they don't have access to fresh and healthy food and everyone in the house insists on, you know, deep frying everything and you know, there's smoking and there's a lot of stress and there's, you know, it's a high crime neighborhood so they can't get outdoors and be as active as they'd like because it's not an environment that's comfortable to be outdoors. And all of that stuff comes into play, but it affects their diabetes. So are those actually healthcare factors? I, I, I'd argue that they are. I mean, that's that whole social determinants of health concept is that their environment dictates your health. And I think not only are you correct, you're absolutely correct, but we trying to articulate social determinants to people that are Medical is one thing, but articulating them to the people that fund these programs. So, like I said, we started funding the, or we tried to organize this across the whole state of West Virginia. West Virginia, to its credit, is one of only three or four states in the country that have statewide EMS protocols. So, when I left here 25 years ago uh, to go to college and then off to the military, every there were multiple regions, and what you could do in one region was innovate start morphine, good to go. You cross a state line or you start, you cross a county line and you had to call permission to start an IV. So the state saw the fallacy of this and said, let's put this in the hands of the local medical directors and let's have these statewide protocols, which are really broad and really exciting. But now let's put local control. So, you know, it's the federalization model. Great. Okay. We did the same thing with CP. So the state has about 150 pages of protocols and our committees researched this stuff for a year. The state office was super supportive. We're put it, we're giving great health care to people. We're also creating a pathway because as we know, the stovepipes of EMS, we're fixing a couple of problems. You're either going to promote into the one lieutenant position out of every 50. You might be the chief of 200 EMS employees but there's really nowhere to go up. So this CP created the roles for the people that John, John, it was back in the days of us being trauma junkies, man, you know, let's face it. That's what we like to do in the military, right? That's not the people we're looking for, for CP. I want to sit, I want the CP to be the person that sets down and talks sugars, talks, Hey, uh, I don't want to talk about your diabetes. I just want to sit here and have a relational moment and talk about, your refrigerator. I open your refrigerator and everything in there has a full carb load of your 100% of your RDA for the day and of your carbs. I look over here and there's a pile of cigarettes. And then I look and go, oh, you're winded walking the 100 yards to get your mail. Well, then, I, and then, oh, by the way, if you're in West Virginia, you live across a creek. A body of water is an impediment to your transportation. So when a CP is out in the home, they're doing a whole lot more. They're actually feeding information back to the 911 system. Go, if this person has an emergency, not only are they, say, morbidly obese and have three or four major life uh, risk for CHF, COPD, and they have diabetes, and maybe they're a partial foot amputee, but you're going to have to cross a swinging bridge. Well, what's a swinging bridge? Imagine a bridge that is the same. Uh, with as your stretcher and it's on cables and you're used to seeing them in another country somewhere 
And that's what crosses the creek to get to grandma's house and to get grandma to the hospital. So we had an instance down here, we talk about, we had an incident where a patient was just discharged from one of the local hospitals and the patient knew it was about to have another flood. You came down here during floods. So we'll talk about that soon. West Virginia has a lot of valleys, a lot of mountains. And the patient was discharged. They get home and they didn't get their medicine on the way in. So the CP calls them within 24 hours and says, hey, we're going to bring your medicine. Oh, you can't come until the creek goes down. The medic was like, excuse me, pulls it up on Google Earth, looks on the map and goes, oh my gosh, he has to do a terrain study. He can't get to these folks' houses because a whole road hollow holler was cut off because the creek was too high. So by the time the paramedic, the CP got to that person, they had been four days unmedicated after discharge from a significant ICU event. So how do we fix that, John? How do we do it, man? Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a uh, environmental factor that is certainly something to account for. And you know, I laugh, you mentioned terrain studies. So depending on my audience and who I'm talking to, and usually it's other vets, I often describe my philosophy or my concept for CP program specifically, not necessarily the, the broader MIH thing, but at least the community paramedic piece as similar to the reconnaissance community from where I came. I really think about CPs as one of their primary missions is meeting the information requirement of the clinicians that are caring for patients. And it's- That are the eyes and ears. They, they absolutely are. And they are the eyes and ears out into the community in places where unfortunately we can't always reach them with our traditional healthcare structures. You know, so I use two different definitions when I'm describing stuff. Talking about mobile integrated health and community paramedicine is two really distinct elements that are often conflated. Where mobile integrated health is this umbrella descriptor. It's this way of describing all the different ways Oh, yeah. A healthcare system touches patients, so we're going to define them as patients, not just people, who have an acute or an ongoing health need that is A, not emergent, and B, not skilled. Um, and I separate those two things out for a couple of reasons. Number one, we have we have an amazing emergency response infrastructure in this country. And densities right. change depending on where you are, and, and the specifics of it are, are unique to the individual communities. You know, They're local. But we have an emergency response infrastructure in this country to be envied. So we're not talking about emergency response. You know, the other part of that is we're not talking about skilled needs. I think skilled needs are a very well defined, you know, from the, uh, you know, the local to the federal level and the mechanisms to provide skilled care and pay for skilled care are, are pretty clear. So we're not talking about skilled needs, you know, where there is an identifiable articulable need. Someone is, is homebound, you know, it, this requires, you know, licensed nursing intervention. Like there's a, there's a pretty clear case for what skilled nursing is. And this is not that this is complementary to that. Uh, I think there are certainly gaps that mobile integrated health programs and CPs can meet, but we're not trying to do home health. Home health exists yep. and they're good at what they do. They're, that is a well developed and refined resource that, you know, it may not be as available in some communities as we need it to be, but it exists. It exists and it's, it's well understood. So we're we're not talking about skilled needs. We're not talking about emergencies. But what we are talking about are all the different ways that we touch patients who are not in a clinic, not in a hospital, not in our space. So that's things as simple as, say, uh, ask a nurse or nurse triage lines. It may be community or senior health fairs. It may be mobile clinical social work. And it also includes this, this newer, novel specialty that we call community paramedicine. So community paramedics fall under that mobile integrated health bubble. And if the operative word in MIH is, is the integrated piece, it's integrated into the broader health system, then this is a way for advanced practice paramedics, these community paramedics operating in a unique role and sometimes with an expanded scope, but not always. And I've, I've really come to the understanding that not every community paramedic and not every community paramedic program, and certainly not every mobile integrated health program requires an expanded scope. They all require community paramedics to function in a role outside of emergency response. And I think that's so it. I mean, we left Virginia. We were in Virginia Beach for 18 years and came back to our native West Virginia, my wife and I. And while I was starting this research project in West Virginia, I talked to a, a fire chief, paramedic, and nurse, all one guy. He was also married to a nurse. And in, in Virginia, they had uh, one of the uh, nursing unions there had got the legislature to pass that no paramedic or EMT could be used in a non-emergency role. Thankfully, they don't have that problem in West Virginia. 
But what he did was he went and took a, uh, had his paramedics and EMTs take a 40 hour nursing assistant nurses aid course that allowed them to be in the system using their EMS knowledge, skills, tactics, techniques, and procedures kind of thing and let them go in the home and function like a CP or, or, and it was a workaround. So we didn't have that problem in West Virginia. In West Virginia, we had a problem of how do we change the thought processes in that we fought so long in West Virginia to get a non-one system. And now we're going to throw this thing in it to, you may not have a non-one call. You know that when I was up in Pittsburgh, you had Alpha, Bravo, Charlie Delta calls. There's a whole lot of Alpha calls out there that that don't need a, a paramedic, but they do need someone that's an interventionalist. And I think of that community paramedic as an interventionalist. They're going in there and learning the landscape and then working the multiple problems. Is, that, is it kind of making sense with where we go with this in our next step, John? It is. And, you know, one conclusion I think that I've come to is – if we wait for the 911 call, we've waited too long. You know, we're not going to change, we're not going to change the direction of the 911 call. By the time someone has decided they need to pick up the phone and engage the safety net, they have already concluded that they need something. And again, this may not be in a medical emergency or a traumatic emergency or anything else, but at that point, the person has decided that they need someone to listen to them. And Changing the direction of that, the alternate venues of care, the, the, you know, the, the treat no transport protocols, we can talk about ET3 and everything else. I think those are all actually elements now of our traditional emergency response systems evolving to better meet the needs of their communities. And that's, that's actually not a community paramedic role in my mind, though a lot of systems are having to kind of evolve to that point and they're using community paramedics now to help bridge to whatever this future model is where those type of interventions, that understanding that just because someone calls 911 doesn't necessarily mean they have an emergency that requires transport to an emergency department. But that should be really the way I think our emergency response system looks at problems. You know, the ideal role I see for a community paramedic and our mobile integrated health programs are to get ahead of those emergencies. So people feel like they need to engage that safety system uh, less often. Well, one of the systems here in uh, West Virginia, Kanawha County, it's an Indian word, but it's here in the capital city, uh, the Kanawha County Ambulance Authority, they're really great about data. They love analyzing the data of how many times they've been to a home and they start finding, hey, these are our our hugs patients. So when I was doing the CMS program, the high utilizer group patients, uh, call them hugs, call them, you know, VIPs, very high utilizers of an EMS system. And they may be people that call two, three times a day. We had an instance here where a patient had been transported, transported, not called 372 times in a year. Last time I checked, there's only 365 days. And we were blown away by that number, and that was a number given to us by the state. So you are exactly correct. Maybe the 911, the 911 call is too late, but after the 911 call, you start doing data pulls. I know you're a data geek, man. You love that kind of stuff. You love the numbers. And I kind of do too because, as a statistics professor once told me, tell me what you want me to prove. I'll use the same set of numbers to go either way. So how do we engage there? Well, we go out ahead of time and try to prevent the next visit. And it may be something as simple as, man, finding the ramp or getting the handrail. How many fire departments would love to not get woken up at three o'clock in the night to help, you know, Miss Jones up out of her floor and all they had to do was install a handrail. Can we see CP doing that? Absolutely. In fact, one of the first significant wins I think I got with the Connect program working for Dan Swayze back in 2013 was almost this exact scenario. We had a woman who was morbidly obese for a variety of reasons that many of which were kind of outside of her control. There was also some crushing depression, a lot of family trauma. There was all kinds of things that really compounding this problem. And one of the big challenges we had was she was unable to access her money because of some some financial situations and had to physically go to a branch to sit down and sign certain documents. And oh my gosh. 
So the only time she ever left her house was when EMS and fire carried her out of her home. And they carried her out of her home, not to take her to a bank to fix a, you know, to fix this financial problem, but to, you know, take her to the emergency department because it was a 911 call. And the emergency department was often not what she needed. A lot of times it was what she needed because she was experiencing medical emergencies that were the downstream complications of all these other social and environmental barriers. When we recognize that the real problem here is that there's a transportation and mobility limitation. This woman's inability to get to places she needed and wanted to go was directly impacting her entire quality of life and her health care. And didn't exactly have deep pockets to just throw money at a problem. In fact, that was one of the underlying problems. But what we did was we worked with several different groups to try to figure this out. And she lived within the city. So, you know, it's a municipal third service up here and a a pretty robust one, but they don't do non-emergency workers. But what we were able to do is actually work with their support personnel who brought out a bunch of uh, temporary ramp and cribbing material so that we could put a temporary ramp in front of her home and then worked with one of the non-emergency ambulance services to bring a bariatric wheelchair van and agree to work out a very, very reasonable payment program so that we could do this one-off transport. And it turned out that her bariatric wheelchair was actually too big to get into the branch office for her local bank where she needed to go. So we went and advocated for her with the branch manager who worked with their senior leadership who was willing to conduct the transactions necessary outside in the parking lot to bring all the the legal and financial documents outside and just helping coordinate all of this. She was able to tell us what the problems were. She was able to articulate the barriers. She was able to tell us what her goals were um, using some MI to kind of help tease some of this stuff out. But once we understood the problem better, we were then able to help her advocate for herself and use our position and our role to go out and say, help us out here. Here's someone who's trying to accomplish this goal. What can we do? And we tried to see if we could coordinate the bank business being done over some type of teleplatform and we could bring in a notary, we could you know, have people there as witnesses, whatever you needed to do. And unfortunately, the bank wouldn't you know, go for it. She had to physically uh, handle some of this stuff in person, but they were willing to mm. work with us and say, we'll come out to the parking lot and do this in the parking lot if you can come there. So we were able to put it all together. It was a huge win and getting her down the ramp, you know, getting her into the van, getting her to the bank, getting that taken care of literally began a cascade of positive events where she now felt like she had some control over what was going on in her life. And that motivated her to try to take on some additional things that she was struggling with because she felt like, hey, I succeeded here. We had a win. And yeah, it took a lot of background help. But I tell my staff, you know, in training, and I think a lot of them come to realize this is true, that in the ideal setting, the best case scenario is after a patient has been with us and we've discharged them, if you were to go back and and do a post-discharge interview and ask them about their experiences with the community paramedic, you should hear something along the lines of, wow, they were great. You know, they were really, really nice. I don't really know what they did, but stuff's pretty good right now. I took care of this. I took care of that. I took care of all these problems. And community paramedic was cool. It was really nice to have them to talk to, but but I got this now. I don't need them anymore. And yeah. while that the first take for that, on all of that by most community paramedics is, wow, I busted my butt for the last four months working with this person and they don't even see it or they don't even recognize it, but that's the goal. And that, that's huge. I mean, you can't, it's not a it's not a clean cut win. It was you shaped that person's personal battlefield and you took out barriers. And you talk about, you know, the MI side of collection of intel. Some of the things I teach CPs are you've got to look at the soft skills. It's not a hard it's not the answer that they give you. It's the tone of the answer. It's the you're looking away and how do you answer a question and they start looking away. It's it's almost like those furtive glances kind of thing. And we, when you talk about how are you going to get this information out of people, you're literally doing like elicitation, trying to get the information out to help them without them knowing they're being helped. And some of the best stories I get back from the, some of the older paramedics that are now in CPs here locally, they're like, I help so-and-so make a grocery run. And I went, what do you mean? He gives me this whole elaborate story because, hey, we're in West Virginia. Everybody's a storyteller. And he goes, and I said, what was the end result? He goes, she got her groceries for the first time herself in five years because he had hooked her up with uh, a bus transportation and then got her to the right store that was big enough to get her motorized wheelchair down the, the pathways, just like this lady. 
So you facilitated something, but really what you did was you created a person to live independently. And I think that's what we're all trying to do, aren't we? It really is. You know, I, I talk about self-management of health as being the goal. And mm. you know, social determinants of health is this term. It, it's sort of become a healthcare business buzzword, but I think it has some real meaning behind it. The challenge is that social determinants of health in its, in its definition really refer to community level factors, the population level factors. It's the environment right. in which people live. And that is critical to understand in order to work with communities of people. But at the end of the day, there's one person in front of you. There's one patient in front of you. And trying to individualize the broader social determinant landscape to understand what specific factors are affecting this person in front of me that are modifiable is a little different. And I, I often talk about them as social determinants of self-management because they're right. individualized and they're actionable. And that's, that's another really key point is how do I help the person in front of me while not losing the population health view? Because we're really speaking to a bunch of different levels. And you're right, I'm, I'm kind of a data geek. And when we talk to different levels of stakeholders, the individual patient stories are the ones that tug on heartstrings. And those are the ones that, those are our wins. That's my win as a clinician is, is the one patient in front of me right now. But when I start stepping back and thinking, about things from a systems view. Where do we apply resources? How do we apply resources? So I start looking at things like taking the federally developed social vulnerability index apps that are out mm -hmm. there. We start taking some of the more demographic maps related to stuff like, let's overlay bus routes. Talking about GIS here, and we're talking about the ability to use oh, yeah. Visual analytics to start understanding communities, but let's overlay bus routes. Now on that overlay, we're also going to plot pharmacies and stores that sell fresh food. And now let's plot primary care offices and granulate them into multiple layers based on uh, accepted payers. So primary care offices that take insurance A versus insurance B. And let's throw this all down on layers. And now I'm going to take all of my patient data for the last, say, five years. And we've developed, you know, internally, we have a tool that we use, the social uh, determinants of self-management barriers list which is not a checklist. It's really a documentation standard. It's a way of articulating uh, the specific barriers that we hear from patients we're able to identify. And I'll say, take the top three and I will cluster heat maps of the barriers over all of that other demographic data. And then we can identify hotspots in communities where say transportation and mobility limitations on the heat map, this is a, this is a, a center of gravity, it's a density. And if I look at the map and I realize that say Uber, Lyft, and bus routes do not intersect with all these people who have transportation and mobility limitations, well, maybe that's where the policy advocacy piece starts to come in. I can take that data, I can make it into pretty pictures so politicians can understand it, or you know, some of the people who write big checks can understand it and say, this is a community of patients that we service who cannot get to the things they need. They can't get to their doctors. They can't get to their pharmacies. They can't get to their grocery stores. They can't get to the county assistance office because there is a transportation desert that is driving their healthcare. And I can show you their healthcare costs because of our you know, vertically integrated relationship with some of the largest payers in the area. And I can say, these patients are costing you a whole lot of money. They're costing you a whole lot of money and they live in an area that is transportation underserved. And I'm looking at like, I've written down three notes just from what you were just saying right there, man. I just saw a bus go by me yesterday morning that said essential riders only. And it's going out to one of the most rural communities outside of Charleston. It's heading up north and it only says essential riders. Well, I think right now essential riders are defined as those that have essential jobs, right? Well, does that leave out the elderly person that used that bus to come to town to her doctor's visit? Does that, does that cut out, the family that's struggling to get food and their uh, WIC dollars are only best served if they come to a larger grocery store and not the, the dollar general or the, the uh, family dollar in their community and they use their WIC benefits. And it, we're in this COVID world now where we've created additional restrictions and I think now our communities are even in tiger confines with degrading social determinants that are, have almost fallen off the cliff. I believe we're going to start seeing people soon that haven't been contacted because either they were never in the system or we're just going to see people at home that we just find deceased here in a couple months because they've been cut off by the social network of society. I mean, what are you thinking? 
I mean, you're in the urban environment out there. So two things. We're hearing that that story actually quite a bit. And one of the unique things I think about the CP work that I'm doing in the program that we're running is that I'm actually covering a really large area. Sure. Kind of the, the Western like quarter of Pennsylvania. So we've got everything from a couple of urban metro areas that are incredibly densely resourced. I don't want to say well resourced, but they're densely resourced. There may be a whole lot of barriers for someone to access a resource, even living in the middle of the city. But it's there. But it's there. And, and the, the barrier is now why can't they access the available resource versus we, we move into some other communities in some more rural parts of the state where the ratio of cows to grocery stores that sell fresh food or pharmacies or specialist physicians or any of those other things is, is really, really, really low and in favor of the uh, four-legged ones. So in those communities, the resource itself is missing. And the barrier is A, why can't they connect to them? And B, who would they connect to even if it was available? You know, it, it, that becomes a whole different challenge. So we're, our folks are kind of dealing with both. But I think in your community specifically, you'd absolutely got some folks living, living out there that are not well connected to the system. And this goes back to a point you just brought up. It's the low-hanging fruit are identifying those, and I hate the term super utilizers, but it's, it's probably the most broadly descriptive, the folks who are utilizing healthcare services at a disproportionate rate to our expectations, which is a wordy way of saying super utilizers. It's yep. the low-hanging fruit is that list of people who are already there. The critical list are the folks who are vulnerable to becoming that person, but haven't tripped over that curb yet. And paramedics know who these people are. If you spent more than a minute in this profession, the minute you walk into somebody's house or into their personal space, you know, generally within seconds, whether it's your first time there or your hundredth, we're going to be here again. You know who those people are. You can identify those people. You have that professional gestalt that says, I recognize without even being able to enumerate them, a whole list of factors that say this person is going to call us again. And you absolutely know that, man. And you know, as soon as you roll in there, but you know who doesn't know that? It's the Their insurance doctor. company. Yeah. We started a project down here with a, uh, it was an insurance company and they were looking for, it was one of the ones upstate and they uh, were looking for patients. And I just did a simple data poll with a buddy and he pulled up 10 or 11 addresses for a person in the last three months. Hey man, that's, that's kind of what we used to see in an EMS, right? Absolutely. Well, if, if one third of your 1.8 million people in West Virginia are on Medicaid, not care, and usually there's many dual eligibles as we talked about in that when I was on the CMS project, but it's Medicaid. Well, my state's paying for that, right? So my state tax dollars are paying for these folks to have medical care and you can jump from Medicaid program to Medicaid program. But if you can't find those folks, well, then they're lost to the healthcare system. But who knows? Who knows where they're at? But so, you, you give 10 addresses to the paramedic that works that area, he or she will probably get it down to two in the matter of just looking at the list, right? Probably. You know, I, I was doing a lot of work around ID and Strat for some of these patients with, <laughs> with our, our vertically integrated, you know, healthcare providers and, and healthcare payers. And one of the things that I teased out of both our data and a lot of the ways that we were approaching the risk identification and risk stratification criteria is the ideal MIH referral, the ideal patient to refer to us. I call them question marks, but this is the patient where ID and strat is optimally conducted in a low information environment. If I cannot answer all the questions to fill in the risk variables for your score, that's an indication you should refer them to us. Because if we can quantify risk, if we can quantify your problems, then we've got resources to apply to the situation. The MIH referral is ideally for the person who I can't answer all the questions. But if we look at a lot of the, the big data-driven risk models that are out there, we attempt to come up with a risk score based on being able to plug in all these variables. And very often, the risk models exclude people for whom they can't answer the questions. Those are the MIH referrals I want. I want the person where you go, I just don't know. I have no idea what's going on with this person. We're responsible for them in some way, shape, or form, but we just don't know what the problem is or even where they are. That's the person I want. I want the person who's been to the ER multiple times or called 911 for any reason. I don't care if it's police, fire, or EMS. If I know that someone has had to pick up the phone and activate a safety net multiple times in the last year and maybe hasn't seen a primary care clinician and maybe 
you know, has gone to the emergency department or not, but if I can see any kind of combination of those type of factors where there's something missing here, that's somebody I want to go talk to and understand what the problem is. Because even if they haven't become that super utilizer yet, they're going to. If we wait long you know, enough, they're going to. Right. Whether it's predictive or a retroactive analysis, you know it. Every EMS person worth their salt knows it. And we're selecting the CPs. The, pe the people are self-selecting themselves. They're not the young trauma junkies we once were. They're the people that want to handle these type of issues. They want to sit down with granny and talk to her for 30 or 40 minutes. They want, they're comfortable in that environment, setting in a rough urban environment and just chatting with somebody. And at the same time, there's some confidence in their, those paramedics have the super confidence about themselves that if they show up and it's a visit two days after CHF discharge and they get there and this person is drowning in their fluids, hey, they're going to dose them with some Lasix and they're going to get all the meds started and then call for their friends in the same ambulance, right? They, and, but they, they, can they can recognize the clinical complications when they stand out. It's not pure right. social. And, and, and it's immediate. It's immediate where when we talk about our uh, brethren in the home health care systems, they have to reach out and call 911. Now, if that CP's there because the person doesn't rank or uh, doesn't rate home health uh, and get a certified nurse there that can do a lot of things and, and they can get CP's there, it's at least some underpinning of fabric to that person's health. At least they're getting something because what I've found and what one of the programs at MedStar found is the CPs become the huge referrers to home health, to these uh, home helper programs, the, the home health, not care with nurses, but just a, an aid. And they become the referrals to right at home, things like that, because they're in that doctors, nurse practitioners blind spot again, man. And they're identifying things. They're the signal, you know, intelligence, the human intelligence person that's out there collecting and trying to help their patients. It's no different, man, than if it was a special forces medic detailed to some mountainside in Afghanistan. When you put a CP in the community, they become the resource. They are most likely, at least around here, they try to put them back in their home their home area, right? Where they know every road. They know someone's grandmother because they go to church with them. They go to um, the same grocery store and people recognize them. They wear different color shirts and it becomes the patients now go, I want, I want the red shirt. I want the red shirt or the blue shirt because that's how they're identified by their roles. Community paramedic does absolutely become that resource. And I think they become a resource for the other folks working within the emergency response system as well. Because when they show up and they go, this is a problem that doesn't need the ER to fix. How do we prevent, you know, we're going to take them there right now because that's what we do. And, and that's a whole different problem to solve for. And we, we absolutely have to solve for that as well. But we're going to take them to the emergency department now, but it's not going to fix this problem. We really need to connect with this person to figure out how do we address those other factors. The reason why they picked up the phone and called 911 today is because of a breakdown in, who knows, there's a whole lot of things that could be breaking down, but when they well, break down, the we need to understand that. It's the social yeah, it's determinants. I mean, we're back to the social determinants thing, which is just a fancy word with some bad situations that people get themselves in or society or environmental factors or, man, I call it real life. I call it real yeah, life. Yeah. It, it, it is real life. It's life outside of the doctor's office. This is real life. Right. And we have to figure out how real life gets better. When I was studying to, to be a physician, it was, you know, we almost teach people that it's the rosy red world of the doctor's office and you can fix everything. And the patient's going to come in and they're going to walk in and they're, and they've got so many healthcare problems, but when they walk out of your office, they're in great shape, right? Well, that's a fallacy. We all know that, you know, and it's not a reflection on any medical provider. It's that the patient's human. And just because you had a great interaction for mm, five minutes, 10 minutes, they're going right back to their thing. 
you know, they're, they're going back to whatever they are doing that's detrimental to their health. But when that CP shows up at their house, man, it's hard to lie to somebody that's sitting there looking at you. That's looking at your pile of cigarettes. That's looking at the trip hazard. They open your refrigerator up and go, Oh my goodness. Hey, here's an instance. When I was with the CP up in Ohio, Guy said he was having glucose problems over and over. He's just having issues, man. Shooting up. It's just giving him horrible, horrible problems. And it was like, huh, we went to his refrigerator and found his insulin. He said, yeah, you know, I've been giving myself shots every day just like I should have. And, well, you know, man, something just doesn't feel right. We go and look, and it was an auto-injector auto failure. The needle wasn't punching through Right. And so we like, look at this. And it's like, I'm with a fireman paramedic and he's like, this thing just doesn't work. So we have that guy and the older man goes, did you feel this thing poking you? And when we were using those terms and he goes, no, not really. Now that I think of it. And we go back and see him five days later. He goes, I went down to the pharmacist and the pharmacist said he'd never seen one of these fail. He fixed that immediately. We come back. The guy said, I setting out on the porch, he was a widower that had been a truck driver all of his life, super self-sufficient guy. And he was out on the porch and the, and the paramedic started like, like punching the, the uh, steering wheel. And I was like, what's the big deal? And he goes, man, he goes for the past month, this guy's been down in the dumps. He's out here enjoying the sunlight. And to me, that's when I realized that CP wasn't like you save somebody from a heart attack and you got a, you're at a, a raw state right? You, you didn't save the cardiac arrest. You just improved a life. I mean, that's what we're looking for in CPs, man, right? I just don't. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a hundred percent it. And we could do this all day because it's been oh, story no, could, after man. story oh. after story about just the way this hey, makes but, an impact is not that cardiac arrest saved. No, no, it's not, man. It's, it's not, it's, it's about when I'm looking at, you know, the two year program we did here that CMS funded, and it's about what doing exactly what we're doing. How do we get the stories out of three or four CPs in a small community somewhere, maybe just one CP making a difference, whether it's the urban environment, the, the suburban environment, the rural environment. And when we're doing this project, we try to articulate to CMS how this saved people, how this reduced, because that's what they're, everybody's looking for a metric, right? Well, CP reduced the spend of Medicare when people came under CP care, right? Absolutely. They, they did not go to the hospital as much. And I'm in an environment And it's where, not because we're trying to keep them out of the hospital. It's because we're improving their overall health perspective and making their utilization and demand for healthcare services more efficient. They're engaging the system in ways that are more effective at helping them stay healthy. And that's why their hospitalization goes down. And that's, I think that's a really key point that I keep coming back to. It's not about keeping people out of the hospital. It's about helping people manage their health better. Wow, man. And that's it, brother. We can talk about this because it, the story's got to get out. They people do. People are doing pockets of America. And that yeah. is the whole point for having the community paramedicine podcast. I want to talk to community paramedics all over the country about the work they're doing, the wins that they've had, the challenges that they're experiencing and get that message out. That's the whole point of this podcast. I mean, and that's beautiful, man, because what you're doing is you're getting people educated where I'm at. It's working great in this small town, right? Or this small area, but we got 55 counties here. The next county over doesn't have it because Man, there's no funding for it. It goes back to how ambulance services get paid. Well, if they don't move a patient, man, because they're under the Department of Transportation. And if you're under the Department of Transportation, you don't get paid unless you move somebody. How now insurance companies are hopping on board and going, man, my patrons are getting better health care. Yeah, the spend may be reduced, but I have healthier people. And it's those insurance companies and those funding sources, those foundations that are looking ahead and go, how do we improve the fabric of our country, our, our community, our town? And that's where I think we're going to go with this, man. To me, man, it's almost a veteran thing. I think you and I talked about this at one of the conferences. Imagine bringing 68 Whiskey, uh, Army Medic, an 18 Delta Special Forces Medic, you know, a Navy SEAL corpsman, 
bring in, and, and here's the offer I'm going to make to them. You've got 10 years in the field, man, you've been around the world. You have done great things for your country. Now I'm going to bring you back into an EMS agency. And here's what your day is going to consist of. I'm going to give you a report of five names. And over the next eight hours, you're going to drive a half hour to each patient, listen to whatever music you choose through the beautiful scenery of West Virginia. And you're going to go sit down and talk to that man or woman for 30 minutes and have a conversation and improve their life. And then you're going to retrograde out for 30 minutes, listen to whatever music and enjoy whatever scenery you, you have. And when you go home at the end of the day, man, you're going to feel good about yourself. And, and you help five or six people improve their lives today. Is that not what we all want to do? I mean, that's exactly what we're trying to do. You know, and then so, making and, sure that that information is conveyed to everyone else that's involved so that they can make better informed decisions about how to work with their patients, how to collaborate with their patients on what's important to their patient. Absolutely, brother. And doctors are now asking for CPs to come with that doctor's patients to their medical appointments. Why? Guess what? They got to look into the blind spot and now they can relay medically relevant social determinant, social economic factors back to that physician. That's it. That's it. It's meeting that intelligence requirement. Yeah, it is, brother. It is. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking some time to do this. I know we took a couple calls to put it together, but. Yeah. Hey, man, I do. And I just got texted that some CPs that are doing an emergency COVID swabbing clinic and I need to get some gear together. And I got text messages coming in because we talked about that multi-tool at the beginning of this. We'll tie it all together in the next 30 seconds. CPs are multi-tools, highly experienced, talented medical providers in austere environments. They've got an emergency clinic they've got to set up right now to start swabbing people because there's an outbreak somewhere. Go execute. Into Get the it story. done. Hey, man. Talk Bye, to man. you soon. I really appreciate it. Thanks for hopping on.